Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Jim Rickards, an investment advisor, lawyer, inventor, and economist, and a New York Times best-selling author of multiple books, including Currency Wars. He also has a new book coming out in November called Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. In this conversation, Jim and I talked about why he thinks a severe recession is coming. We also got his take on why the odds of a global financial crisis are uncomfortably high. Jim and I also talked about the Federal Reserve and inflation. We also addressed the soaring debt problem here in the U.S. with the debt to to GDP ratio now at 131% and why deflation is a central banker's worst nightmare. I also got Jim's take on the outlook for the U.S. dollar and where you can invest in these uncertain times. I really enjoyed this conversation with Jim. I learned a ton and I think you will too. Jim Rickards, author of multiple New York Times best-selling books like Currency Wars and, of course, the upcoming book that I have already pre-ordered called Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. It is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Julia. It's great to be with you. Well, it's a really important time, too, and uh, that's why I couldn't wait until your book came out to have you on, and I'll certainly have you on again in November when it does come out. But, you know, you're one of these folks who's an incredible thinker when it comes to all things macro. So I was kind of hoping we could just start with the big picture and then start to tease out some of these broad, um, some of the points that you'll make. But let's get your overall view of the global economy and, of course, the domestic economy here in the U.S., well, uh, yeah, if we do the global economy, that's definitely the big picture. But it's, it's the right way to think about things. Uh, too many policymakers focus on you know, U.S. policy, U.S. economy. You know, U.S. is the biggest economy in the world, so it's an important subject. But uh, they don't uh, put it in that broader context. They don't look at what's going on in China, Japan, you know, Germany. You can say the EU, but you know, Germany is the, the driver there. Um, and you have to do that because of the international monetary system. The financial system's connected. Um, you know, my new book sold out talks about supply chains. Supply chains were breaking down. There's a, some of that pressure has been alleviated. There's probably more pressure on the way. We can we can talk about that. But yeah, you really do have to to look at the whole world. So just to um, so maybe take it in the order of the largest economies, the U.S. is uh, almost certainly in a recession. We had the first two quarters of 2022 negative. Uh, GDP growth, uh, two quarters in a row. That's the rule of thumb definition of a recession. I understand that, um, you know, it's the decisions made by the National Bureau of Economic Research in Cambridge, Massachusetts is a panel of, I think, nine, you know, kind of PhD level economists. They haven't said anything yet. So that allows people like Janet Yellen to say, well, there's no recession because, because, you know, because the, the MBER uh, hasn't said so. But uh, in fact, they never do. They, they often, uh, take you know nine months or a year sometimes to say oh the recession like started way back when like maybe by late this year december january they'll say oh a recession started in january uh you know 2022 well thank you very much we we knew that at the time but um but you're taking your time to uh, to make up your mind third quarter you know jury's out uh third quarter's over the the data is not in um, you kind of get mixed messages on that. We'll see. We'll, we'll know at the end of October. But even if the third quarter is slightly positive, which it may be, uh, you're still sort of flattish for the year. So put aside the, the debate about whether there's technically a recession or not. To get three quarters into the year with about zero growth, you know, 
two quarters down, maybe one quarter up slightly. We don't know yet. Uh, but you're, you're, you're kind of close to zero in the world's largest economy. That's not, that's not good. But that's not what's coming. Uh, what's coming is a very severe recession. And whether, you know, when all is said and done, the, 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 you know, the, the, the umpires, you know, the National Bureau of Economic Research says, well, you had, you know, first half wasn't really a recession, but now it is, or you had a double dip recession or whatever. They can call it what they want, but you can see what's coming. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, monetary tightening uh, in in top of uh, on top of a world where growth is deaccelerating, inventories are sky high. Um, you know, the funny thing about the supply chain is you go back a year or so, kind of this time last year, we all remember headline, you know, supply chain is broken down, juniors, cheesecake can't get cream cheese, they can't make cheesecakes, or, uh, you know, the, the shelves are bare. So all true, that, that was happening at the time. And that's when I uh, started working on the book. But what a lot of purchasing managers did um, and inventory managers, they they doubled their orders. They said, well, or tripled the orders. They said, well, if the supply chain's breaking down and I want just a normal amount, I better order three times as much or twice as much just to get what I want. And they did. But what happened was by the summer, some of that pressure had been alleviated. And here come the shipments into the warehouses that are twice as much or three times as much as what you needed at the exact same time that the Fed was destroying demand. And so demand drops off a cliff, uh, retail sales drop off a cliff, the warehouses go from being empty to being full to the rafters, and now all that merchandise is sitting there. We've heard this from, you know, Target, I think was the first one to sound the alarm, but uh, a lot of other, um, uh, you know, distributors, Dollar General and other stores have said the same thing. So, uh, you know, Nike, I mean, just many examples. So what what do you do when you're um, in charge of inventory? You cut prices. You, You don't want that inventory. It costs a lot of money to keep it in the warehouses, number one. Number two, a lot of it's seasonal. It's like, who wants to buy, you know, summer dress in uh, December? Not too many people. Um, so they just slash prices. So, uh, and that reduces margins and reduces profits. So we're just kind of flying into the face of all that uh, with the Fed tightening rates into weakness. The, the Fed will be the last to know. You know, you're, you and I can talk about it. Your viewers will understand it. There are other people, you know, kind of saying the same thing. The Fed will be the last to know because they're very model driven and the models are badly flawed, mostly with the Phillips curve and their focus on the unemployment rate, which uh, is is not a good measure of, um, of what's going on in the labor force. So we're flying into a really bad recession uh, and, and the stock market's starting to get the message, but you know, you've got this pivot narrative. You can't quite get rid of the Some of the buy the dips people are still around. So count on them to, you know, buy into a, uh, what could be a horrendous bear market. Uh, you got your buy and hold crowd. You know, remember in uh, um, 2000, 2000, 2001, the NASDAQ dropped 80%. And a lot of people got out, but a lot of, they said, well, just hold on to it. Well, it did come back, but it took until 2015. I mean, it took, that's a long time. A lot of people died in the meantime. You know, you're waiting 14 years to get back to where you were. So uh, so those people are still around. But um, But there is what I call the pivot crowd. So the Fed pivot is a narrative, and it kind of goes like this. Yeah, the Fed's tightening. We see that. But they're going to, inflation is going to come down really fast. The economy is going to slow down really fast. Both of those things are happening. Inflation, a little less so, but the, the economic slowdown is there. And the Fed's going to get the wake-up call and have to cut rates. And cutting rates, that's the pivot. They're going to pivot from rate hikes to rate cuts. And that's good for tech stocks, so buy stocks. Um 
Now, that's the narrative. It prevailed in uh, late July and most of August. The stock market did go up. There was a, there was a decent rally uh, in the middle of what's you know, become a, a bear market uh, based on this Fed narrative that they were going to have to cut rates maybe in December, early January, et cetera. There, there are two huge fallacies in that, uh, in that narrative. The first one is, uh, who says the Fed's going to get the message? And if you look at what Jay Powell said in Jackson Hole on August 26th, and what he repeated in his Washington press conference on September 21st. September 21st was like, uh, you know, hey, for any of you who weren't listening to Jackson Hole, let me repeat it. Okay, we're going to raise rates. We're going to crush uh, inflation. We, we know there's a recession. He didn't put it in quite so many words, but you don't have to be. Uh, you don't need a decoder ring to see what Jay Powell was saying. Uh, you know, I've been following this for 50 years. I've I've never seen a Fed chairman use the word pain three times in one paragraph, but he did. Uh, and he meant it. Um, and so he kind of, and then he kind of doubled down on that in September 21st in the press conference. So he knows there's going to be a recession. They're causing it in, in part. Um, unemployment's going to go up. He said that. And, and he and really September more than in August, he tied unemployment to um, killing you know, basically demand destruction and getting inflation under control. He said, we're, that's how we're going to do it. Um, and uh, you're already starting to see some early signs of that. So, so if we're um, so with that as their focus, who says the Fed's going to, you know, get a wake up call in December, January? Almost certainly not. I mean, they told us what they're going to do. They're going to raise rates in November. They're going to raise them again in December. They're going to raise them again on February 1st. That's the first meeting in the 2023 calendar. At that point, you're at four and a quarter, maybe four and a half, or even higher. Uh, in terms of the target rate for uh, Fed funds. Um, and then he said, if we see progress on inflation, we'll pause. But pause doesn't mean cut. It means just wait a long time, because at that point, core PCE, that's personal consumption expenditure, core, which excludes oil and food, and that, that's just how they do it. That's their favorite metric. You can debate whether it's the best one, but it, the debate doesn't matter, because that is the one they use. Um, that let's say that comes down from uh, about six and a half where it is now to around three and a half. Okay. It's still not two. Now what Powell, which is their target. So what Powell said is we don't have to keep raising rates to force it to two. We just have to raise them enough that it'll get to two on its own. That's what they call a restrictive or restrictive policy. So, but that's not a rate cut. That's that. He said that might last for a year all the way into 2024. That's when he was talking about rate cuts. Now, again, this, this can change, but, but they've told us what they're going to do. I always say forecasting the Fed is the easiest thing I do because they actually tell you what you're going to do, what they're going to do. You just have to listen and believe them. Um, now, the hard part is understanding how badly they're going to destroy the economy and when they're going to get the wake up call. That's the hard part of the analysis. But telling what they're telling you what they're going to do is the easy part because they kind of tell you. So, so the stock market notion that somehow there'll be cutting rates in, in next winter is just false. And but the second fallacy is even bigger is tell me why it's a buy signal for stocks if the Fed is throwing the economy into such a bad recession that unemployment's going to go up significantly and growth is going to come down, inflation is going to come down. Why is that a, a, a buy signal for stocks? Maybe at the bottom, you know, and the bottom might not be till late 2023. Okay. We'll talk about that next year. There, there, yeah, there's, there are opportunities to, to buy the bottom, but we'll be nowhere near the bottom. And I, the, the, 
the stock market again, the, so the August rally was based on the pivot narrative I just described. The September collapse was based on the people saying, well, I just said, which is, hey, you know, that, that, that narrative doesn't really make sense. The Fed's not going to cut rates. Uh, and then, of course, the sledgehammer on September 21st. And so, you know, this the beginning of October. Yeah, there was a there was a uh, a rally, a two day rally. Um, bear market rallies are are really interesting. Some of the biggest rallies in history have been in the middle of bear markets where you ended up losing everything, but for a couple of days or weeks even, uh, it's hey the bottom's in, you buy stocks, etc. So you have you have to watch out for that. So so my expectation is the recession's coming. It's going to be really bad. Um, inflation is going to come down fast, but not quite fast enough for the Fed. Uh, they're going to keep raising rates into early 2023, um, destroying demand, raising unemployment. And we're going to wake up this winter, although you can see it coming today. We're going to wake up this winter with a, with a, a severe recession, high unemployment and a much lower stock market. Jim, there is so much to dig into there. And I thank you for framing it up um, in, in such um, a, you know, a really in-depth way. You mentioned um, a couple of times this uh, notion of a severe recession. Um, I'm a millennial. The one I remember the most, obviously, is the global financial crisis. So how do you contextualize it? Like, I know it's hard to predict how, maybe it's hard to predict how severe, but how do you kind of handicap the severity of um, what you might see coming? Uh, that's a uh, that's a great great question, Julia. I uh, yeah, I was around for the 2008 financial crisis. I was around for 1998 financial crisis. You know, I, I, I negotiated that uh, bailout for LTCM. Uh, 98 was interesting because it was a an acute financial crisis that came very close within hours. Actually, and I was you know I was in the room with the Treasury and Italian Finance Ministry and 19 banks and you know a thundering herd of lawyers. Trying to trying to save the world, but uh, we we came within hours of shutting every market in the world. If we had not, there was a four billion dollar all cash. You know, you could you couldn't use the word due diligence because there wasn't time. It was just, hey, the Fed wants us to do this, so let's just do it. Um, so uh, so that worked, but um, it was it was you know it was a very close call. They would have shut down Tokyo and then around the world, London and finally New York. And you know they would have opened days later, but that's how uh, with trillions of dollars of losses, it would have been worse than what actually happened in, in 2008. It didn't happen, but there was no economic recession at the time. That was, and that's, that confuses a lot of people because, and particularly if you're, if you're using 2008 as a frame of reference, there are, there are financial panics and financial crises and liquidity crises, and there are recessions, some of which are severe, but they're two different things. Uh, 98 was a finan- an acute financial crisis with no recession. Um, 2000 was a mild recession, but there was no severe financial crisis. Now, NASDAQ collapsed, but there wasn't a lot of leverage in NASDAQ. There was no contagion there. Yeah. If you owned, uh, I forget, the, I think it was pets.com with the sock puppet, you know, if you JDSU, if you own that stuff, you lost all your money. But, um, but it didn't spread because it didn't, no banks, no banks failed, no major brokerages failed, et cetera. Uh, so, th- so in 1990, a mild recession, but no financial panic. Uh, October 19, 1987, interesting. Stock market fell 22% in one day. Not a week or a month, but one day down 22%. And that was a financial crisis, but there was no there was no recession. Uh, so they're separate things. However, they can happen together. 
And 2008 was an example. There we had an acute financial crisis, and you know the names. Um, Bear Stearns failed in March of 2008. Fannie, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac failed in June of 2008. Um, then Congress bailed them out. And I was working on the McCain campaign at the time. And I remember I was on a call, the economic team, um, and uh, everybody was high-fiving, like, hey, the financial crisis is over. Now we can get back to talking about the Iraq war, which is what they really want to talk about. And I was, uh, I guess, to play my usual role of uh, uh, messing things up. But I, I said, hold on. I said, this isn't over. You're not going to make it to Election Day without uh, a much bigger failure. And I didn't say like September 15th at midnight. That's, that was Lehman Brothers. But everybody knew that Lehman Brothers was the weak link. They always had been. They were the weak link in 1998. So, um I said, you're not going to make it to Election Day without uh, a, a major crisis. And so get your guy ready. Come up with a four-point plan. doesn't matter what the points are. Just make them up, you know. But get the guy on the steps of the Treasury the day it happens to give the four-point plan. And um, he'll reassure the American people and you'll win the election. I was left off the call. I was not invited back. That was at a very short tenure as a political advisor. Um, so then sure enough, September 15th, the crisis comes. John McCain runs around like a chicken with his head off. He's, you know, doesn't know what to do. Barges into the White House and President Bush said, well, I can't, we're in the middle of a campaign. I can't let McCain come in without bringing in Obama. So they did. They had McCain, Obama, Bush and the economic advisors in the in the um, in the cabinet room. Um, and uh, and Obama didn't know any more than McCain, but he was smart enough to keep his mouth shut. And people looked at it. McCain looked scary, scared, and Obama looked cool. And so if you look at the polls, that McCain was ahead in the polls until that weekend. And then Obama pulled ahead and stayed ahead and won the election. And that was the turning point. It was it was not, um, you know, Sarah Palin or the debates or all the things people in Washington want to talk about. It was the it was the financial crisis and McCain's kind of panicked reaction. So there we had both, uh, you know, and then um, Lehman Brothers, September 15th. Uh, and then Morgan Stanley was days away from collapsing. Every, you know, Dick Full kept calling John Mack to get, have Morgan Stanley bail out um, Lehman. And Mack's like, no, we're worried about Morgan Stanley. We're we're on the ropes now. And Goldman would not have been far behind and, and so forth. And the Fed truncated that by making Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs um, bank holding companies. So then they could bail them out because they were banks. Uh, I've worked on Fed applications. It took two years to get done. That was done in about two hours, but they can do what they want when, when they have to. Uh, but of course, there was a severe economic recession as well. So, um, so, but I would encourage analysts to separate those two things. Again, they came together. It was it was horrific, but um, but they can happen separately. My, my point is, I go back a little further than you, Julia, and uh, um, going, I remember 73, 74, because I graduated in 1973, and then uh, and so did my classmates. And a lot of them went to Wall Street. I just I went to graduate school, so I was I wasn't ready for the real world yet. So, uh, but they all got jobs on Wall Street, and they all got fired like a year later or less because this the, the uh, recession in 1974 caused by the Arab oil embargo and the quadrupling of oil prices was was horrible. That was the worst recession uh, since the Great Depression at that time. Now we've managed to top that record a few times since. But at the time, that was, you know, stock market crashed, um, you know, uh, unemployment spiked, you know, the, uh, uh, I think all my friends lost their brand new jobs on Wall Street. But um, that was bad. 82 
was a really bad recession. And that was the one that Volcker, you know, induced kind of doing what Jay Powell's doing today, by the way. And if you want to understand where we're going right now, I would look at that 80, 1981, 82 recession that topped 74 in terms of the worst recession since the Great Depression. That was the worst recession until 2008. Um, and it was induced by the Fed, you know, raising interest rates and uh, causing demand destruction because Paul Volcker was out to destroy inflation. And Paul, Bol Paul Volcker, I spoke to him about this. He, he's, he's been legendary ever since. And as it relates to today, and that was really your question, how do we put all this in context? Um, it's important to remember Jay Powell is not an economist. He's a lawyer. And lawyers, one of the reasons people don't like lawyers is they actually think about things differently. That's you go to law school to kind of get brainwashed in a, in a benign way. Um, but they're better at looking at both sides of the issue. They, they tend to be, if you're Jay Powell, you know, fairly articulate. Jay Powell's a Republican. Uh, and uh, he's looking at his legacy and he's saying, do I want to be Arthur Burns, who was considered a great failure because he let inflation get out of control? Or do I want to be Paul Volcker, the man who is, you know, considered a hero because he crushed inflation? Well, he'd rather be Volcker. That's kind of obvious, but let's remember the costs. Let's remember what happened to crush inflation. Unemployment was uh, well over 10%. It was like 11 or 12%. Those are, this is in 1981, 82. Th those are depression level unemployment rates. Um, and, um, uh, you know, but inflation did come down, but basically had to trash the economy to do it. And Powell kind of said, that's, that may be what it takes. Maybe not that bad but uh, much higher unemployment and, uh, and a severe recession. So, so far, uh, what I just described is not the same as 2008. We may have um, a very bad recession, possibly worse than 2008, um, but just a recession. Now, let's take the, the financial crisis component, because I said they're two separate things, but they can converge. And they did in 2008. So that's a good... Uh, uh, for the for the millennials, I my I have three millennial children, so they uh, uh, that's the one they they lived through. Um, that was a, that was a good lesson because it was as bad as, as I described. But uh, so then, if you if you want to say, okay, well, what are the odds of a global financial crisis? Bearing in mind that that's different than a recession, uh, uncomfortably high. So we may end up with both, and this may start to look like not. 2020, which is, I don't know what that was, that, that you know, down 30% in two months, March and April 2020, and then up 34% in the third quarter. I mean, what what was that? Well, that's what happens when you turn off the lights. You know, that, that, wasn't, a, that wasn't a business cycle, it wasn't about inventory or interest rates or anything else. It was just, hey, we, we listened to uh, uh, you know, a phony like Fauci and shut down the economy. Uh, and I, I really fault uh, Trump for letting that happen. But um, that that is what happens. So that doesn't really, that's such a one-off that it's kind of hard to use that as a model. But 2008 is a model, uh, you're right, Julia, and that may be what we're heading for, bearing in mind that these are two separate vectors. Got it. Um, again, it's so helpful um, when you contextualize like that. I, I would, I want to bring up inflation just because I feel like this is the topic of the day. Um, it's topic of every dinner table. I'm, I'm spending more on food uh, than I ever remember. So is the can the Fed actually do anything to solve for inflation by raising? Is this going to be effective or, or not? It's going to be effective 
at a very high cost. So the short answer is yes, but it's so, and I'll, I'll kind of flush that out a little bit, but it's so indirect or roundabout that the cost is gonna be horrendous. And that was really at the root of what I was saying about how bad the, the recession is gonna be. So just to uh, just put it in context a little bit. So my, when my, the editor, editor-in-chief at my publisher called me uh, in um, the, about this time last year, fall of 2021 and said, uh, Jim, we, we want a book on the supply chain thing. You know, can you do it? I said, yeah, I, I think so. And gave him an outline and we said, okay, let's go, let's roll. Um, and uh, and she, you know, she's, it's a business um, imprint, a portfolio at Penguin Random House. So she said, yeah, we want to do the supply chain. I do a good job, but we want a chapter on inflation because obviously the supply chain is feeding into inflation. And it was, that was also in the headlines and inflation was getting out of control and Powell, you know, he testified in November 2021. He said, time to stop using the word transitory. I think we want to retire that word. And, and he was right a little late, but he, he was right about that. Uh, but then I said to her, I said, okay, uh, chapter on inflation for sure. But I want to write a chapter on deflation also or, or disinflation. In the book, I explain why they're the same thing because, of, because it's directional. Um, inflation is coming down. And so the book has that, and it, and she was fine with it, but it was kind of seemed like, well, why are you writing about deflation when everyone's writing about inflation? And I said, by the time the book comes out, the deflation is going to be going to be coming down the tracks. You're going to be able to see it, and it turns out that that's exactly right. So, so you're right. Inflation is the biggest story. We all know what happened: gas prices, food prices, um, you know, other other goods and services, airline tickets. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right about that, Julia, but. Um, there's there are two kinds of inflation, broadly speaking. There's what's called cost push. This comes from the supply side. So that's what we had in 1974. That's what we that's what we had now, uh, which is it's coming from higher commodity prices, higher energy prices, energy shortages, supply chain bottlenecks, um, uh, you know, higher input costs, a lot of other factors. So it's coming from the supply side. The other kind of inflation is called demand pull. This is this comes from consumers. This comes from individuals, and it's a, it's a psychological thing. Um, people say, uh, you know, uh, gee, I was thinking about buying a refrigerator. I better go out and buy it now because the price is going to go up. I, if I wait three months, it's going to cost me ten percent more. So I'll go buy it now, or a new car, or anything, you know, uh, a suit, a dress, anything you want. Go buy it now. Uh, because the price is just going to go up. That's demand pull inflation, and then that that plays out in terms of wages. People want to raise. I mean, I, we went through this in the late 70s. I was working at uh, Citibank at the time. They used to just give us raises without even asking. They would just say, hey, we're going to raise your salary, whatever, 20,000 bucks or whatever, because um, they, they knew people would quit or they were going to ask for it sooner or later. They were just trying to keep ahead of things. And that was true on, you know, I was in New York at the time. I was on Madison Avenue, finance, uh, anything you could think of. Um, so we don't have that yet. Right now, the demand pull inflation has not kicked in. The cost push inflation, and that's what you're seeing at the grocery store, and that's what you were describing, uh, is, is there. It's, it, it's, it's what's driving inflation. The difference is the Fed has absolutely no direct power over the supply side. They don't. They don't drill for oil. They don't run farms. They don't you know pilot ships. They don't drive trucks. Uh, they don't unload in the docks of the Port of Los Angeles. They don't do anything uh, that could uh, alleviate supply bottlenecks or supply chain bottlenecks. 
Um, they can control the demand side, even though demand is not the problem. See, this is the point. They can control the demand side by raising interest rates and tightening money, but demand is not the problem. It's not where the inflation is coming from. But if you crush it enough, if you destroy enough demand, it will feed through uh, in terms of lower prices, even with supply side constraints. And just you know, just to be a little blunt on the subject, um, people complain that gas prices went up, and they did. They went from you know two forty a gallon to five dollars a gallon or more, depending on where you were. Um, well, five dollars was, was the national average according to AAA. Well, um, they came down a little bit in uh, July and August, kind of not all the way back, but you know maybe closer to four dollars. All right, that's that's in the right direction. But um, uh, you know the old saying: the the cure for high oil prices is high oil prices. In other words, the price itself destroys demand. There's a recursive function or circularity to it. And uh, you know, if you want to get the price of gas down, get unemployment up to seven percent because people who aren't working aren't using any gas. You know, it's not a question of having to pay $4 a gallon or $5 a gallon. If you just got fired and you're sitting home, you're not buying any gas uh, or very little, and that'll bring the price down. So we, we are, um, uh, so, so the way it works is raise interest rates, tighten money, reduce the balance sheet, et cetera, get unemployment up. It doesn't sound like a desirable goal, but that's, that's what it takes. And that's what happened in 1982. Get unemployment high enough so people are buying hamburger instead of steak. They're buying, you know, um, uh, you know, whatever is the least expensive thing on the shelf, day old bread instead of new bread, or they're not buying gasoline because they're not going to work, et cetera. That will bring prices down, but at a very high cost, which we, we just talked about, which is high unemployment and uh, lower productivity. Uh, meanwhile, the U.S. debt. It keeps going up. We haven't really talked about the debt, the debt issue, but uh, so it it starts to that part of it looks like 1981. But if you throw in a global financial crisis, which I mentioned, but we haven't really drilled down on that, then it starts to look more like 2008. Got it. Um, so many things to pick apart there and explore further. You you mentioned the debt. Um, this is an area I know that you've been focused on and. Uh, can, can we explore that a bit and some of the consequences? Um, and it feels like we're not having this conversation enough. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on on which on this how the, the, this recession or what what aspect well, of the, the, the debt part of the equation. Too. Oh right, sure. Yeah, yeah especially yeah, yeah, yeah. in a ri- ri- rising rate environment as well. Yeah, well, that's like a glacier. Uh, you know, I do a lot of uh, high altitude mountaineering, so you're, you're living on glaciers uh, on ex- an expedition for. Uh, for weeks at a time. Uh, glaciers are extremely powerful, but they move extremely slowly. With some exceptions, but they, they kind of like, you know, an inch a year, a couple inches a year, but they but they move mountains. I mean, they just, they create rivers, they create canyons, they move mountains. They're extremely powerful, but slow. That's a good metaphor for the impact of, of debt. And when I talk about debt, in particular with the United States, but you can apply this to any country, I focus on the, the debt to GDP ratio. Because you can't really talk about debt in isolation without thinking about the capacity to pay the debt. And a simple example, if you have a $50,000 balance on your credit card and you're making $30,000 a year and trying to pay rent in New York, et cetera, good luck. You're probably going to go bankrupt or at least default on that card. But if you owe $50,000 on your credit card, 
but you're making $5 million a year, it's, you know, you just write a check. It's no big deal. My point is you can't look at a $50,000 debt and decide if it's a problem or not, unless you compare it to the income. And if it's too low, it's a problem. And if the income's high, not a problem. So that's why you use the debt to GDP ratio. The US just hit uh, $31 trillion in uh, in national debt. That is national debt, almost all of it in the form of US Treasury securities. Uh, not all of it, there are other obligations, but mostly US Treasury securities. Well, is that a problem or not? Well, one way to answer the question is compare it to GDP, do the ratio. The answer is that ratio is now a, a little over 130%. At the beginning of the Trump administration, it was 106%. So Trump and Biden together have taken it up 25 percentage points uh, from 106 to, um, uh, to, to 131. What was it in 1980? Uh, when Ronald Reagan was uh, elected? Um, the answer is 30%. 30% is completely comfortable. That's like the person with the $50,000 debt is making millions. No big deal. 30% um, is comfortable. 50%, yeah, getting up there. Uh, Angela Merkel and all her years in Germany, and, uh, and there's a lot of research to back this up, says that 60% was the limit. And that's what the Master's Treaty that created the European Union and the European Central Bank uh, that was their goal. They said, don't go over 60%. If you do, you're expected to take measures, you know, raise taxes or, or you know, reduce debt or reduce spending, do something to get that back down under 60%. What's the, uh, the critical threshold? When I say critical threshold, this, that's, that's from physics, but it turns out that uh, you know, a lot of the models that economists use are junk, but if you use uh, complexity theory and physics models and bring them over to economics, and uh, which is what I've done over the last 20 years, um, they work extremely well because they're complex dynamic systems. One's money, one's you know particles and waves, but they, they have a lot in common. But um, if you, uh, you say, what's the critical threshold where, you know, water turns to steam or, you know, water turns to ice or something changes in such a way that it's not the same. It's, it's radically different, but it happens very quickly. The, end, the, best, the, the best research says the answer is 90%. And this comes out of, you know, Ken Rogoff at uh, Harvard, also Carmen Reinhardt, who's now the uh, chief economist at the World Bank. Uh, Vincent Reinhardt, uh, her husband, um, has done a lot of research and a lot of others. So it's not just Rogoff and Reinhardt, although you know, they were the leaders in this. But they've looked at uh, hundreds of cases over hundreds of years. And I like that because it's not just you know, kind of cherry picking data, uh, developed economies, developing economies, uh, economies that issue debt in their own currencies, ones that issue debt in other currencies, principally US dollars, et cetera. So, you know, a wide variety of case studies. And they show that when you when your debt to G GDP ratio goes over 90%, your, your multiplier of an additional debt, uh, of additional debt goes below one. So just to put that in context, at, at 30%, if I borrow a dollar and spend a dollar, I might get a dollar 30 of growth. You know, assuming you spend it wisely, that's a, that's a big condition, but uh, you borrow a dollar and spend a dollar and get a dollar 30 of growth. Okay, the debt was productive if you if you put it to good use. Uh, but that dollar that 30 gets smaller and smaller. As you get closer to 90%, it goes to a dollar 20, a dollar 10, a dollar five. Past 90%, you know, roughly, 
uh, you borrow a dollar and you spend a dollar and you only get 95 cents of growth. You don't get your dollar back in terms of GDP. And then 90% and 85%, et cetera. So 90% is the critical threshold. The US is at 131%, highest in history, which means we are well past the point where you can borrow your way to growth or you can borrow your way out of a debt crisis. And we were heading for a debt crisis. Now, debt crises of that magnitude, oh, by the way, if you ask uh, a separate question, say, well, well, who else is at that lunch table? You know, who else has a debt to GDP ratio of about 130% uh, or higher? The answer is Lebanon, uh, Greece, uh, Italy. Now, those are, your, those are your, uh, your, your, your mates at the lunch table. You know, that, that's where the United States is. Now, you know, Stephanie Kelton, she's the big brain of uh, modern monetary theory. She's a professor at State University of New York, uh, Stony Point. Um, and I met her, very, very nice lady, but uh, we, we, just, we disagree uh, pretty uh, radically in terms of modern monetary theory. She says it doesn't matter that, uh, you know, she, they always point to Japan. Japan is at uh, 280%. Um, way past any any member of the peer group. Um, China's probably higher. China's a little more opaque because, well, because they are, but also they they don't have as much national debt. If you, if you look at the national debt to GDP, it's modest, but they have an enormous amount of, of provincial debt. And the banks, the banking system is is owned by the government or controlled by the government. So when you throw in when you throw in the bank debt, the state-owned enterprises, the provincial debt, and the and the government. So that's the real national debt. Um, and I've been I've been trying to talking to. I was in um, uh, south of Nanjing. They had these ghost cities. You know, I went out to see them. I I would say I got mud on my boots, but I wasn't wearing boots. I was wearing Italian loafers, but I got I got mud on my loafers. And um, but I saw them. I visited them, and they're they're real in the sense that you know it's steel and glass and copper and cement and asphalt, and they got country clubs and hotels and retail complexes and high rise luxury apartment buildings, etc. And the and the metro stop and an airport, and then you look down the horizon, not too far, you know, maybe seven eight miles. There's another one, and then in the distance, there's another one. They're all empty. They're all empty. But you can create 20,000 jobs for two years if you do something like that or three years or longer. Um, but it's all all that money's wasted. Well, that's that's kind of, um, you know, tells you uh, a lot about China. But the point being it was all debt financed and, and a lot else besides. So uh, but Kelton says, Stephanie Kelton says uh, it doesn't matter because um, you're borrowing in your own currency. So if you're Argentine and you borrow in dollars and you print pesos, how are you going to pay the dollars back unless you have, you know, huge trade surpluses, which they don't. So they just default, you know, Argentina is a serial defaulter and everyone expects that. If you um, borrow in dollars and you print dollars, which the United States does, they're like, what's the problem? Just print the dollars and pay the money back. Uh, well, that's true. Um, there's no reason to, if you print dollars, there's no reason to default on dollar debt because you actually can print the money and buy the bonds. But it doesn't mean nothing else bad happens. Uh, what about uh, inflation or hyperinflation? Um, what about uh, the foreign exchange rate? Uh, you know, the exchange rate can collapse. And the, these modern monetary theorists um, show very little understanding of the international aspects. They treat the US like a closed economy, which it's not. 
I mean, if it were a closed economy and we didn't have to worry about trade deficits, trade surpluses, capital flows, exchange rates, you know, foreign credit, you know, China owning one trillion dollars of U.S. Treasury securities, which they do. If you didn't have to worry about any of that, I, I think they'd probably still be wrong, but they'd have a better case. But you do. Um, and they they don't they're just not very knowledgeable about any of those things. But you can think of exchange rates as a conveyor belt. Exchange rates are one way the problems go from one country to another, or good things can go from one country to another, uh, depending on whether your exchange rate is going up or down, the impact on terms of trade, et cetera. But they, they completely ignore all that. They also ignore the role of commercial banks. They, they just look at the Treasury and the Fed um, and uh, and look at money supply, but like kind of M0, but don't understand how commercial banks create M1 and they do their own thing. They're not uh, they're not on as short a leash as as they seem to think. But but it, you know, if you read Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, and she said this is from her book, so it's not me, you know, kind of uh, you know projecting uh, you know what I think they think. This is her actually you know writing this. She says, well, we don't really need a bond market, U.S. bond market. Uh, we only have a bond market as a favor to investors because it gives them a place to put their money. Uh, but why, you know, why have, um, you know, he said, yeah, government spending. So the Treasury borrows money by issuing bonds, and then the Fed monetizes the bonds by buying the bonds, and that gives the Treasury the money to pay the bills, et cetera. She says, do away with all that. Just give the Fed, you know, wire instructions for Lockheed. And if you need five F-35 fighter jets, order them, and just send the money right to Lockheed. Why do you need a bond market? I mean, she actually says that. So, okay, kind of, I mean, legally, that's um, that might be possible, but to suggest that you can do that without consequences is nonsense. Um, and they say, what about inflation? Uh, well, she, their view is as long as there's excess capacity and unmet needs, et cetera, you know, you're not going to have inflation because there's a lot of slack in the economy. That's a legitimate debate. But what they say when inflation happens, raise taxes. Um, and the, by the way, they also say you don't need a tax system because if you can just print the money, why do you have to collect taxes? And their answer is we collect taxes to redistribute income. OK, well, at least they're honest. I mean, that's kind of a socialist model, but they're honest about it. Uh, but but it's important to bear in mind that Stephanie was the principal economic advisor to Bernie Sanders in 2016 and 2020. And Bernie Sanders today is the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, controls the purse strings. So um, coming out of Congress and Biden's kind of a cipher, he's, you know, he's barely aware of his own existence. So uh, Sanders is in a powerful position and she's she's the, the Bernie whisperer, so to speak, who's behind all this. So uh, if you ask the typical member of Congress, can you define modern monetary theory? They'll look at you funny. They've either never heard of it or they certainly don't know what it means. MMT, you know. But they're acting as they're acting in accordance with modern monetary theory. Whether they know it or not doesn't matter. The actual behavior of the Congress, and again, just go back to COVID 2020, because we talked about the debt to GDP ratio. So in um, around May or June um, 2020, Trump put through a um, a one, sorry, a two trillion dollar covid relief package and that was when you know the the, pay, the paycheck protection plan that was 800 billion and everyone got the the 1200 check you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and then at the end of december at the very end of the trump administration they did another 
trillion dollars uh, almost. Uh, and that's when everyone got the $600 checks. And now you're up, up to $1,800. Uh, by the way, those checks, that is helicopter money. Um, that's, you know, what the Fed does is is kind of nonsense. But um, but when it's fiscal policy, not monetary policy, and you're handing out checks, that is helicopter money. And credit to Larry Summers for saying, you're going to get inflation out of this. Well, Biden comes into office in January 2021, and he's like not to be outdone. He did his own COVID relief package. That was another $2 trillion. And that's when we all got the $1,400 checks. They just handed them out. And then later that year, uh, or yeah, might have been, yeah, I think late 2021, early 2022, they did the um, trillion dollar infrastructure package. And then just to top it off, we what we get recently was the, uh, the uh, just under a trillion dollar Green New Deal, I call it the Green New Scam. Well, and the baseline budget deficit, before everything I just described, the baseline budget deficit was about a trillion dollars a year. So take a trillion dollars for 2020, 2021, okay, and, and 2022, add on you know two trillion for Trump's first package, one trillion for his second one, uh, two trillion for Biden's first package, one trillion for the Green New Scam, and I think a trillion for infrastructure. That's seven trillion dollars on top of the two trillion dollar baseline budget deficit. So that's $9 trillion piled on top of what was at the time um, about a, a $21 trillion national debt. So that's how we got to $30 trillion. That's how the ratio went from 106 to 131. Um, these numbers are mind-boggling, and MMT says doesn't matter. Um, so, But it does matter, and it, it shows up the way I described earlier, which is it, it slows growth. You don't get growth. So best case for the U.S. is very slow, weak growth, which we saw from 2009 to 2019. Worst case is you throw a recession on top of that, which we're heading for, uh, and the U.S. will be in fiscal distress. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to an earlier point you made when you were referencing your book, and that's when you brought up the notion of de deflation. And how does that play into it? Imagine it makes the situation worse or exacerbates it. Can you kind of unpack your thesis on deflation and how it ties into this? Sure. Um, it's coming. Uh, it, it it will take another three or four or five months to play out. But I, again, it goes to my point about um, when prices get high enough, if it's coming from the supply side, not the demand side, if it's coming from the supply side, it destroys demand. People will say, uh, you know, eat, let's say you're working and you are filling up your car with gas and what used to be a $45 fill up is now a $90 fill up. Uh, which it is, or heaven help you if you have a Ford F-150 truck, because it's, it's like a, a 150 is like $150. That's how much it costs to fill those things up. Um, but um, it, demand is inelastic. Uh, like I said, there's the unemployed person, hypothetically, who is home and not using gas. But if you're getting the gas, you need the gas. You got to get to work. You got to do your job. You got to take the kids to school, whatever it may be. Well, if you're spending double, that comes out of something else. Maybe you buy the gas because you have no choice, but then you're not going out for dinner. You're not going to a show. You're not going to a sporting event. You're not buying new clothes. You're not taking a vacation. Uh, you, you quit the club because you can't afford the dues. In other words, it comes out of something else. And that uh, is a depressant on the economy. And that will very quickly be deflationary uh, when 
particularly when combined with tighter monetary policy, the Fed's reducing its balance sheet, raising interest rate. They're going to keep doing it. They told us that again, just all you have to do is believe them. It's not that hard to forecast. Um, now, to you know, Julie, I think this was your question. How does that tie into the debt discussion we just had? Well, um, debt is uh, is nominal. I mean, I, I focus on the difference between you know nominal and real, and a lot of people look at interest rates. They say you know, interest rates are really low. Well, no, when you subtract inflation, they're actually um, uh, you know real rates can be are, are negative, uh, or um, uh, you know they're, they're not as uh, or they're going up, but real rates are negative because you have to take it, take out inflation. But debt is nominal. If I owe you a dollar, I owe you a dollar. It's interesting whether the dollar is worth less because of inflation or more because of deflation. That's important. But I owe you a dollar. That was the deal. And um, this is where deflation is pure poison when it comes to the debt to GDP ratio I described. Because the national debt uh, is, they say it's 31 trillion, but the real value of the debt goes up in deflation. When I do portfolio analysis for people, I always recommend a heavy slug of cash. And like, well, why would I have cash? You know, there's no yield. In a deflationary environment, cash can be your best performing asset, even if you get a low yield, because the real value is going up. Every dollar is worth more in terms of purchasing power in a deflationary environment. So deflation is good for creditors or savers up to a point. And I'll, I'll come back to that. But it's the worst possible world for, world for debtors, because even if the nominal value of the debt is not going up a lot because interest rates are low, the real value of the debt is going up a lot because the value of the dollar is going up. So you owe more in real terms. Deflation is the central banker's worst nightmare. It's a treasury secretary's worst nightmare for the reason I just explained, which is you know we have a bad enough debt problem as it is, but if the real value of the debt is going up because of deflation, then um, and you can't borrow your way out of it, Got it. What are you going to do? You have to restructure it, or you know, again, uh, or you're going to have to create. You're going to have to create inflation after after creating deflation inadvertently by de destroying demand because they're worried about inflation. You may end up in a world where the deflation is so destructive because of the increase in the real value of the debt that you actually have to go create inflation. And that's exactly what happened in Weimar Germany in 1922. Now, one one kind of last point. Um, uh, it, on that, um, with regard to deflation, I said it favors creditors and hurts debtors because the real value of debt is going up and the creditors like, hey, I, I, I own this note and it's worth more to a point. But the point at what point does the, the does the debtor walk away? The debtor, what happens is the debtor defaults. So all of a sudden, uh, so it starts out, you know, deflation kicks in, real value of debt's going up, the creditor's happy, the debtor's in distress. But the debtor just says, hey, I'm going to default, file for bankruptcy, you'll sleep in tomorrow, it's on you. So all of a sudden, the burden goes from the debtor to the creditor, because the debtor just said, I'm not paying. And the creditor has what? A bad debt. You got to write it off, shrink the balance sheet. Now you're the loser. So this is contagion. This is what contagion is. And interestingly, the mathematics are exactly the same as uh, epidemiology. When, when you know COVID came along and everyone became an epidemiologist overnight, the first thing you realize it's about 20% cell biology and 80% math. Uh, but the mathematics of viral spread 
uh, are exactly the same as the mathematics of financial contagion. That's why they call it contagion. It works the same way. And so, uh, so yeah, the debt's out of control. It's slowing growth. You can't earn your way out of it. Um, uh, you can't, there's no reason to default because you do print the money. The real burden gets higher as deflation kicks in. Debtors then default as back to the creditor. Uh, but assuming the U.S. doesn't default, the only way out for the U.S., the only way out is inflation. So I just we just talked about how we have inflation now. I described how we're heading into a disinflationary or deflationary period, which we are. But longer term, 2025, 2025, 2026, you're going to have to go to something that looks more like hyperinflation because it's the only way out. Yeah. You know, another area I want to explore with you, um, Jim, is currencies, Uh, the U.S. dollars uh, surge, uh, a lot of fluctuations happening in currencies. And I'd love to hear you kind of share your views um, on the U.S. dollar, maybe the outlook there and maybe just currencies in general. Would love to hear what you're thinking about. Sure. Thank you. That was because that was my first book, Currency Wars. That was a a national uh, uh, national bestseller. yeah, and I went through the dynamics of that. Now, that was at a time when the U.S. dollar was at an all-time low. August 2011, just read, the book came out in um, November, um, but August 2011, the dollar was at an all-time low. And not coincidentally, gold hit an all-time high at the time, $1,900 per ounce. Um, it, it's gone higher since then, but at, at the time, so dollar's low, the dollar value of gold is high, all-time high makes sense, right? Because what, you know, I always say gold, people say gold's up or gold's down. And I say, no, gold's not anything. It's metal. It's uh, atomic number 79. What changes is the value of the dollar. When people say gold is up, what they really mean is the dollar is going down, which is the case. Today, we're in the opposite situation. And by the way, gold prices have been coming down. Uh, They have rallied a little bit recently, but uh, it's down from $2,040 an ounce in early March 2022 to um, today it's around 1750 give or take but it's been as low as 1650 fairly recently but that's what you would expect if the dollar is this strong which it is so the dollar is not at an all-time high but it's getting there it's the highest in over 20 years um you know people talk about the euro at 98 cents it's, that's about where it is i was in uh, i was skiing in the in the swiss alps and um well, French uh, Chamonix on the French Swiss border in 2000, and the euro was 80 cents. Um, and that was that was that was the all-time low for the euro. And uh, you know, we had vacation to family. We'd go out to dinner, have like a four-course dinner and wine and tip and everything. We couldn't spend a hundred dollars. We tried, but we couldn't do it because the euro was so cheap. We're not quite there, but we're we're getting closer to that level. Uh, but what happened the last time the dollar was this strong? Um, before 2000. Well, it was 1985. That was the Plaza Accord. And the, that was back when, you know, it wasn't, the, there were five people there. It wasn't exactly the G7, but pretty much of an overlap. Uh, and uh, James Baker convened the meeting at the Plaza Hotel in New York with the finance ministers of, uh, you know, Japan, Germany, UK, France, simply Switzerland was there. Um, and they orchestrated the decline of the dollar. The dollar was too strong. Uh, it was hurting U.S. exports. Uh, it was importing uh, deflation, believe it or not, because uh, we were trying to get uh, 
but by then uh, the inflation had, had died out by 1985. It was down to around two percent. So we were importing deflation. They didn't they didn't want that. Um, and so the question today is um, the strong dollar. Well, the, the strong dollar is doing the same thing. I looked at the markets recently, and it was what I saw was you know stocks were down, bonds were down, gold was down, silver was down, the euro was down, Nasdaq was down, everything was down. And I said, how can that be? I mean, you know, some things go up, something. How can everything be down? And the answer was the dollar was up. And everything I just described, well, oil was down also. But everything I just described, oil, copper, gold, stocks, et cetera, they're all denominated in dollars. So it shouldn't really come as a surprise if the dollar is that strong that the dollar price of everything else would be lower. And it's a very deflationary trend. And by the way, that's another contributor to the deflation which will soon replace the inflation that we just talked about. But here, here's the hard part. Um, Jenna Yellen doesn't know anything about this. I mean, she's a, she's a labor economist, sort of, and a statistics geek from Berkeley. She doesn't know anything about monetary policy. It turns out she doesn't know much about fiscal policy either. She's running around talking about equity and climate change, you know, so that's fine. Uh, but um, uh, there's no James Baker. There's no George Schultz. Where's the Where's the, the leadership and the gravitas and the authority to be what Tim Geithner, um, and I talked to him about this, he calls it the convening power. Convening power doesn't mean you can um, force all the solutions, but it does mean you have the authority to, to convene the meeting, bring a group together and talk about it. So where's the leadership? Where's the convening power to have a new plaza court? Uh, can we stabilize exchange rates? Can we bring the dollar down a little bit? Uh, can we just put gold back in the equation? Maybe not a strict gold standard, but just as a kind of some kind of benchmark to help us think about what we're doing independently of other currencies. And by the way, most currency indices. So, you know, a DXY, which Wall Street Journal uses, uh, Bloomberg Index, the Fed has a couple of good in indices I use. Um, all of those indices tell you if the dollar is stronger or weaker compared to other currencies. And it's heavily weighted to the euro. And yeah, the euro and the US dollar together are 80% of global reserves. And so uh, that makes some sense, but you're, in, you're in, a, in a bubble. It's currency to currency. Well, what, what if they're all going down against something else or they're all going up against something else? What's the something else? What, what is the benchmark or the, or the yardstick that we can use that's not a currency? And the answer is gold. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you get accused of being a gold bug or whatever, and I don't expect a gold standard anytime soon. But just objectively, analytically, that's the only thing you can use as a yardstick that's not another currency. And right now, gold's been going down, which tells you the dollar is way too strong. But I don't see it's a problem. Uh, it's a problem for the rest of the world. Uh, certainly, if they have dollar-denominated debt, you know, Turkey, uh, we mentioned Argentina and, and China and a lot of others. Um it costs you more in your currency to convert to dollars to buy, to pay off the debt. Uh, and that of course has a feedback loop because it increases the demand for dollars, which makes the dollar even stronger. So it's, it's a very, and this gets back to what we talked about earlier with foreign exchange rates being a conveyor belt that moves problems around the world. That's exactly what's happening. So uh, the whole world is suffering from weak currencies, um, the suffering from a strong dollar, the dollar um, is deflationary from the U.S. perspective because stuff we buy costs less. Uh, we need fewer dollars to buy it all. 
but it's it's the opposite for everyone else in in their local currencies it's high, it's highly inflationary and they're going to start to go broke and default on debt but the the real problem is uh, i don't see any leadership uh and i don't see even much awareness of the problem uh and and finally i don't see any interest in using a benchmark like gold or even a commodity basket which which the BRICs are talking about um as, as an objective measure of what currencies are really worth yeah just real quick before i let you go because you mentioned gold and it does seem like people want to be in u.s dollars where, where should folks be allocated what, what would you what would you suggest or what are you thinking right now sure uh it's a great question um i'll say i'll say something that sounds completely obvious but actually isn't you want you want diversification and everyone rolls their eyes and go, oh yeah diversification we know that you know they teach us that in first week of uh, risk management or whatever but people don't understand what diversification is so i run into people all the time that go hey jim i'm highly diversified i've got 50 different stocks in 10 different sectors you know uh semiconductors consumer non-durables uh uh you know mining and mineral etc uh, i'm fully diversified and i say no you're not you may have 50 different stocks in 10 sectors but you have one asset class it's called stocks and in financial distress but you know bull markets but especially bear markets they become highly correlated your 50 stocks are all going to go down at once maybe one or two exceptions but they're all going to go down at once that's not diversification diversification is having slices to asset classes that don't have very much to do with each other not 50 different stocks but yeah okay have a slice of stocks um i'd have some treasury notes uh for um for deflation uh, disinflation lower interest rates they'll perform very well I'd have a slice of gold, but I, I recommend 10%. People think I say, you know, sell everything and buy gold. I've never said that. I don't think it's a smart thing to do. But 10% gold uh, will serve you very well, certainly as an inflation hedge, but also a hedge against just a collapsing confidence in the money. And that's another subject we haven't talked about, which is, do we even know what money is anymore? That's maybe maybe that's the subject for, for another day. Uh, real estate, for sure. Not commercial real estate. It's still not off the bottom, but... Um, but residential real estate, agricultural property, natural resources, uh, water in particular, but you know, energy stocks have been, you know, if the whole stock market goes down, you might find energy stocks in one of the few sectors going up because uh, you know, um, you know, people ask me if I've ever driven the EV, I like, yeah, drive a lot of golf carts. That the whole green new scam, I, I mean, well, let's not even get into climate change, but um, if you want enough batteries to have electric vehicles in any sizable percentage, not 100%, but just 10 or 20%. There's not enough lithium in the world. The entire world supply of lithium uh, is not enough to build more than a small fraction of the batteries, lithium ion batteries that you need to run electric vehicles. So none of this makes sense, but it's being pursued by lightweights like uh, you know John Kerry, Janet Yellen, Tony Blinken. Uh, these people are not really serious thinkers, but um, uh, in fact, one of my, I also recommend private equity, which is hard to find. You got to be really selective. I recently invested in a, uh, as a private deal, not not a public deal, but a, a lithium mine. I, I think the whole Green New, the Green New Deal is, is a scam, but I know that lithium prices are going, they'll go to the moon before they uh, cool off. So that uh, uh, is, is very happy with that. Um, so yeah, um, uh, some equities, oh, a big slug of cash, maybe as much as 30% cash partly because it's a hedge against deflation, but also people don't understand this. It has embedded optionality. 
when, when everything else crashes around you, if you have cash, you're the person who can go shopping. You can actually pick through the wreckage. Everyone else is trying to get out of things that you know either crashed or they need cash. They need cash and they can't get out of something else. Um, but if you have cash, you don't have this problem. So it also reduces overall portfolio volatility. So, so equities, notes, cash, natural resources, real estate, um, gold or silver, um, you know, maybe some other things, but that that's a, that's a real diversified portfolio that will serve you well in kind of every state of the world. Well, Jim, I certainly learned a ton from you. I took a ton of notes during this conversation. I'll have to have you on for, you know, maybe a two hour special at some point, um, okay. just because you have a wealth of knowledge. So I want to pass it back to you, give you a chance to, um, you know, maybe share where folks can find you or learn more, or, you know, pick up your book in the future. Um, so I'll go ahead and pass it back to you now. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, basically everything we talked about uh, is covered in even greater, greater depth in my new book. It's called Sold Out. Uh, it's available for pre-order right now on uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other uh, number of other uh, you know outlets, uh, uh, you know independent booksellers, etc. It'll be uh, on the bookshelves on the, in the stores on November 29th. But you can pre-order it now, and uh, so uh, that that's up on my Twitter handle. I'm very active on Twitter at James G. Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S, one word at James G. Rickards. So I do a lot on Twitter, and I'm the editor of a, um, I think it's a number one uh, financial newsletter. It's called Strategic Intelligence. Uh, but if you just do Google Jim Rickards Strategic Intelligence, you'll find it. So Twitter newsletters uh, and a new book. Uh, some I'm kind of a I've been keeping busy. Well, Jim Rickards, I thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and look forward to having you on the show again. And best of luck with the upcoming book. Can't wait to read it. Thanks.